This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss the Olympics. Uh, We're coming up on the Summer Olympics in Tokyo in 2021. And uh, the Olympics, of course, have a long history, as does international sports competition. And uh, as anyone who is a sports fan, as I am and as many of you are, I know, um, recognizes sports have a lot of politics attached to them, particularly international sports competition. And today we're going to explore the history of the Olympic movement, the history of international sports competition, at least in the last century or so, and how that history helps us to understand uh, the politics around the current Olympics and the intersection between international sports competition and the politics around democracy and international affairs in our world today. We're joined by two of the most interesting, thoughtful, and distinguished people uh, writing and thinking about these issues, uh, Professors uh, Robert Edelman and David McDonald. Um, Robert Edelman um, is a uh, professor of Russian history and the history of sport at the University of California, San Diego. And he's written four books uh, on a variety of topics in Russian history and sports history. The ones related to sports history, which are well worth looking at, are Serious Fun, A History of Spectator Sports in the USSR, and Spartak Moscow, A History of the People's Team. Uh, He's been a consultant for HBO, PBS, ESPN, and CBS on sports history. And uh, he's co-editor of a series on sports and world history, and most recently has co-edited a forthcoming volume on the history of sport in the Cold War. I had the chance to read part of this volume uh, in preparation for our discussion today, and it's filled with fascinating articles on people like East German uh, skater Ekaterina Witt uh, and uh, the politics surrounding uh, the Olympics throughout the Cold War. Uh, Bob, uh, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Uh, our second guest uh, is an old friend and a distinguished scholar and teacher and university leader, uh, David McDonald. He's the Alice D. Mortensen Petrovich Distinguished Chair in Russian History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, he's the author of numerous books and articles on Russian history. My favorite, uh, Divided Government and Russian Foreign Policy, 1900 to 1914, a book I still very vividly remember reading when I was a graduate student trying to understand uh, Russian foreign policy. Uh, Relevant for our discussion today, David's written a wonderful and insightful article on sport history and the historical profession, uh, actually published by, uh, in a volume edited by Bob Edelman, uh, published uh, just a few years uh, ago. David, thank you for joining us today. Good to hear you, Jeremy, and always glad to help. (laughs) Nice to have you on, David. Uh, Before we turn to our discussion with uh, Bob and David, uh, of course, we have uh, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? They say that sport unites the world. Well, uh, let's, let's hear about it. They say that sport unites the world, and so it was we watched it twirl. We've met the world in all its warts through its weirdest, strangest sports. 1904, absent cheap transatlantic transportation, a Cuban mailman's roots were his qualification, and nearly indeed would he have been forgotten 
if his New Orleans dice game had gone rotten. Back in 36, the champions of peace, true diversity, held their competition to prove Hitler's superiority. And beneath the black, white, red, supposedly of peace, we saw our vilest demagogues all decked out in their wreaths. In 1980, we weren't there, nor Soviets in 84. I guess it could be said about those sportsmen of lore that the world had gone and conquered their sport. No one retrieves the football from the enemy fort. 2016 saw us in Rio de Janeiro, the lavish games on the people's dinero, and Ryan Lochte's scary scrape. Who could forget such a narrow escape? But they say that sport unites the world, and so it was we've watched it twirl, the century's drama, in truth, its greatest farce. Oh, sportsmanship, civility, my arse. <laughs> okay, let's go home. <laughs> I, I love the humor, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, some of the more absurd and, uh, or, and or particularly dangerous moments in Olympic history. And the way in which we seem to idolize the Olympics, but also how 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 ridiculous and, <laughs> and and terrible some of these events can be. Right, right, and the ways they can be misused. Right, exactly. So, Bob, let's let's turn to you on that humorous note, but serious one as well. Uh, what what is the Olympic movement about? Where does it start, and uh, how how do we get to this moment where the Olympics have become this this huge commercialized enterprise? Where does this all begin? Well, it begins in the 19th century, uh, needless to say, when Baron Coubertin is conceiving this uh, possibility of what he calls reviving the Olympic Games. But in truth, this is a bit of what we call Olympism ideology. And uh, one doesn't see much of this when one goes to or listens to an opening ceremony. The link is always to ancient Greece in the so-called cradle of democracy, which, of course, itself is, as you know, a, a contested concept. Uh but what happens is that uh, Coubertin is a French aristocrat. His country loses the Franco-Prussian War. He becomes convinced that that's because young people are not at physically fit and they don't do sports. And so here's the, the real genesis of it. He travels around the world. And one of the first places he goes to is Great Britain. And so really the genesis of the Olympic movement is not really ancient Greece. He doesn't take a trip one day and sit there in Olympia and have this idea flash into his mind. He goes to the rugby school and tours the other so-called public schools of, uh, of Great Britain where the young uh, uh, British elites go to. Uh, uh, these are secondary institutions of high, uh, these are institutions of, of secondary education. And it's there that we see sport emerging beginning to go from wild kind of violent activities to things that are rule bound and also are competitive and are seen as a way of producing young men who will lead the nation and also lead the empire. So that's where public schools, the so-called public schools emerge and that's the real basis uh, for uh, Coubertin's inspiration, although it doesn't get mentioned in opening ceremonies, at least it didn't until 2012, when of course the games were in written and it was mentioned quite specifically. So what happens then then is that all of these young gentlemen are amateurs, right? They don't do this for a living. Over time in the course of the 19th century, we see, especially in the last decades, there's an influx of working people, working men primarily, 
Uh, and I should say that when these uh, sports are created in the public schools, these are all male institutions, that these institutions are then challenged by massive numbers in the millions of working men who are primarily interested in soccer and seek to engulf or wind up engulfing uh, the young men from the elite schools. So the response then is a series of federations that emerge in the latter part of the 19th century in various specific sports, rowing, uh, what we call track and field, uh, football, what, what the world calls football. And uh, Coubertin's intervention is a response to the fact that all of these proletarians are mucking about in the beautiful thing that he sees the British elite having cre been created. And so the Olympic movement emerges from all these international federations. And what he does is tries to organize them and uh, establish a set of institutions, at least the beginning of a set of institutions, which will evolve into the, the International Olympic Committee. And of course, that's what we see dealing with it today. That, this is a really helpful background, especially understanding, in a sense, the uh, grassroots origins and the uh, ways in which this is a movement that transcends different countries. Uh, David, you've written a lot about the, the rise of nation states and um, the sort of mobilization of societies uh, for nation-centered power in the early 20th century. How does that overlap with this story? Um, it, it happens very quickly. Before I answer that more directly, uh, I'd add to what Bob said that uh, a seminal work that has uh, long since uh, disappeared from uh, uh, the young person's bookshelf is Tom Brown's School Days, which is the, a really, it's a novel uh, based on the rugby experience. And it's a, it's a really essential expression of the ennobling uh, role of sport for, uh, for young middle class and upper middle class men. Um, but very, a nation, uh, the national element of the Olympics emerges uh, very early on, and uh, uh, really to the consternation of the of the IOC, uh, uh, national controversies. One that that I, I was just looking around that I seen mentioned in the memoirs of a Russian diplomat who was stationed to Sweden in the uh, in the early nineteen teens. Uh, is the Olympics in Stockholm, where, uh, uh, Bob, correct me, but I believe that's Pablo Nurmi's big dead debut. And uh, there's a country that Nurmi is a Finn, and the, and the Grand Duchy of Finland, Finland is a unit in the uh, Russian Empire, is a constituent element of the Russian Empire. And the Finns want to fly a Finnish flag. And uh, this is something that comes to the diplomats and is eventually quashed, but uh, apparently creates a lot of bad feeling. But, uh, uh, of course, after World War One. Uh, the national element, despite uh, people's uh, uh, wish to, uh, to to try and overcome it, in some ways in the peace conferences, but obviously national self determination becomes a really important consideration in interwar politics, and uh, and it becomes a uh, it becomes a really vibrant force. But it's something that goes back to the middle of the nineteenth century, uh, as with uh, Bob's public school boys is. Uh, in the aspiring nations of, uh, of the Habsburg Empire, especially, but even uh, before German unification, the idea of athletics and its association with the expression of a distinctive national spirit is very widespread. Whether it's the uh, Fatrians, uh, gymnastics movements, or uh, the young the young Falcons and their various uh, offshoots in the uh, in the various uh, uh, nationalities of the Habsburg Empire. Uh, the Boy Scouts and Robert Baden Powell are supposed to instill certain uh, national virtues in their uh, in their accolades. So, uh, what happens after World War One 
is simply an exacerbation and a uh, and a, a, a concentration of this uh, of this sense of national distinctiveness and national achievement that, of course, uh, receives much stronger expression because it's taking place in, in form of competition. And uh, uh, Zach's, Zachary's poem referred to uh, the thirty six Olympics. Uh, that was uh, that was designed from the outset to uh, to be that type of festival. Uh, uh, we could point to the World Cup, uh, which is emerging at this time as well, and uh, it becomes an uh, 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 how can I put it, sort of a uh, parallel form for for the, the expression of this type of uh, of national distinction, and and that is uh, for all the participant uh, for all the participant societies. It's a way of trying to uh, it's a way of uh, expressing some sort of unity that transcends, as it, if we put aside the roots of amateurism, that people see as transcending the uh, other divisions in society. So uh, it's been a strong element throughout, and uh, as we know, continues to be so. And Bob, just following on David's really insightful comments, um, to, to what extent does this um, international element survive the, the experiences of thirty six? Um, and, and other moments when the Olympics are so so clearly tied up with international competition. I mean, we've all seen the images of Jesse Owens uh, in 36 and the, the, the Hitler audience. Um, and then, you know, as you've written about so well, during the Cold War, um, these issues are clearly attached to competition between the United States and the Soviet Union and different world systems. So to what extent does the international angle uh, and element survive, or, or is that more the veneer? Uh, over this. Uh, well, let's backtrack a tiny bit. I, I was about to, t- the baton was really passed very nicely by, uh, from, not so much from me to David, but David picking up on it. Because the, the next, uh, the, one of the two, in fact, there are really two fundamental aspects to the International Olympic Committee when it forms is one that this is an amateur competition. So this is a way to keep uh, people who cannot afford to do the sporting activity on their own uh, out of sport. And secondly, the question of nation. Uh, so nation obviously implies politics at some level. And so there is this intention that somehow sport and politics did not mix. And so over time, not instantaneously, the Olympics take on the nation as being their fundamental organizing unit. Once you do that, the, you know, the cat is out of the bag or whatever metaphor you want to use. And uh, it becomes politicized. And so that's where we get to the kinds of things that David was talking about today. One distinction I think it's important to make is that the distinction was made by Coubertin and others between German uh, mass exercise and so-called Kultur and competitive sports, usually ball games, which were what the British kind of saw as their big competition, not competition, contribution to uh, the emergence of sport. And the Olympics are a kind of... uh, combination of the two mm-hmm. and a process by which we see uh, sportification of things that were in fact aesthetic activities like uh, figure skating and gymnastics and things like yeah. that which become sportified and uh, so there, there's an interesting tension I think in Coubertin's uh, straddling of the English model and the German model mm-hmm. and the German model uh, goes back again to the late 19th century where you have in Germany this uh, obsession with Hellenism, you know, Philo-Hellenism, expeditions all over the world and archaeological digs, bringing back things from the so-called then third world to the so-called first world. And that has its roots in the German part of the story. Uh, and basically what uh, 
Coubertin comes to focus on ancient Greece is to bring the Germans into what he sees as a way of contributing to world peace by having the English and the Germans who are in an armed race at this point find a basis for cooperation. Uh, David, uh, just uh, building on these comments on on how the Germans and others uh, adopt the Olympics as a, as a way of showcasing uh, their their comp- competitive urge and their ability to compete with other societies. Uh, why do the communist countries, in particular the Soviet Union and East Germany, why do they seem to put such inordinate emphasis uh, upon the Olympics to the point of, uh, and of course this happens in the United States as well, but it seems more extreme, especially in the East German case, uh, the use of doping uh, and, and the commitment of resources in a very strained uh, budget environment to competition. What relationship, if any, is there between that and the, the communist regimes themselves? Uh, again, before Where I do we go? <laughs> I'll build on a point that Bob made is that if uh, your listeners want to understand how they can uh, see in action the blending of the German and the British uh, attitudes to sport, uh, you, Bob's right, you point, look at figure skating, uh, gymnastics, especially rhythm, rhythmic gymnastics, but the mass gatherings of the athletes before and after the opening and closing ceremonies. And in a lot of countries, most recently Beijing in 1908, those big flashcard displays, right? And uh, uh, the the, uh, the mass choreography, sort of Busby Berkeley meets uh, God knows what. But uh, um, in terms of uh, in terms of the use of sport to emblematize the system, I think uh, we see that first with uh, Nazi Germany and uh, triumph of the will, and it's uh, and and again the Italian sides in the in the World Cup that that these are supposed to embody a certain national principle. They're supposed to represent a system an entirely uh, integrated way of producing modernity and uh, and is supposed to be held to be is held to be uh, demonstrably superior by its competitive uh, ag- uh, competitive success in the in, in the arena but also the general physical fitness and the physical superiority of their specimen this is all tied up with eugenics and miss america pageants and and uh, movements like this as well but it's a very powerful and widespread uh, phenomenon, but on the actual uh, its role in in, in the Soviet in the and uh, the Soviet style socialist states, Bob is really your expert, and I'll yield the floor to him. I accept that, and and we'll add nuance in order to uh, perhaps slightly query with you. Yeah, um, Hitler was not a big sports fan. No, I know. No, he, he was interested only in boxing, and he in fact was. Uh, very much uncomfortable with the Olympic movement because it was internationalist. He saw it as similar to the League of Nations. And of course, you know what he did with that. Uh, And so he had to be convinced by Goebbels and others that this was a useful thing. And really, uh, the complexity here is that Goebbels used it as a way to normalize and, and kind of downplay the racial aspects of this. And this was, of course, a very, uh, tricky moment because here they come to to power they do all these awful things in the three-year period they haven't done the final solution yet so we have to be careful and not conflating all these things together uh, but then what happens is the olympics take place uh i would argue that jesse owens was a kind of uh, exception to the larger rule as as you described it 
of, of German superiority and German fitness, but also they downplayed the anti-Semitism. And you remember, there was an attempt to boycott the Olympics in 1936. Mm. And so in response to that, uh, and let it be said that the Olympic uh, Committee was very much in favor of defending the Nazis about uh, their approach to the Olympics. But ever, nevertheless, they try to come off as appearing normal. And the reason that's important is because if you look at what happens during the Spanish Civil War, where there's this uh, intervention on the part of the the, the Nazis and the, and the fascists on the part of Franco side, but also more importantly at Munich, uh, there's this notion that you can make peace with uh, Mr. Hitler, that he's normal. And he had these normal Olympic Games as part of that. And so you could argue, and I think uh, one would have to be careful about it, more careful than I'm being here, uh, this uh, link between a kind of ambivalent attitude uh, toward uh, international sport and what was in fact passing for international politics at this time. And, and so I guess the question, Bob, I want to come to you to you on first is, you know, to, to what extent does this history, and it's a very uh, complex, but also in some ways uh, a history where the ideals don't match the reality, and that's not unique, of course, to international sports, uh, but to what extent does that legacy uh, poison or at least reshape the Olympic movement uh, coming into the end of the Cold War and our current world. Uh, I think, and I know you've written about this, as has David, uh, the 1980 uh, U.S. boycott of the Olympics after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the 1984 retaliatory boycott by the Soviet Union, and the controversies today uh, over uh, who should participate and, and who shouldn't. H how does this history matter for the way we think about the contemporary Olympics and contemporary Well, we're, we're all historians, so we know it matters. Um, I hardly know where to begin. <laughs> um, it turns out that um, Olympic sport in the Soviet Union was not that popular with the Soviet peoples, plural that uh, the only sports that I've written about that were successful spectator sports were basically soccer, ice hockey to a certain extent, and then basketball third. And the other th interesting thing about it is that despite the uh, importance of women's sport in the Olympic competition, uh, Soviet men uh, could have cared less and they did not attend women's sports. And then women themselves did not attend women's sports with a few exceptional moments. So there is a way in which I would argue that Olympism uh, can find a comfortable fit uh, in its grandiosity, in its pretension, in its formal apoliticism uh, with uh, some of the ways that the Soviets went about organizing sport. And so uh, I would also say that uh, one has to be careful about the World Cup. When the World Cup, and this is true of the Olympics too, starts out, the World Cup starts in 1930, then it's held in Italy in 1934, it's complicated by, first of all, the fact that it's not overwhelmingly popular. The largest arena uh, for that uh, event was held 20,000. Uh, several of the people who are uh, on the Italian team are actually from South America and have you know, Italian roots, but are in fact citizens of Argentina uh, and Chile for the most part. So uh, the links that uh, you're talking about are uh, tricky, and I think they worked in different ways. And so uh, I think what the thing, David's already mentioned this, that the Soviets uh, come to is that both they and the Olympics share the idea of modernity. And then the other aspect that they share is social improvement. Mm -hmm. These are liberal concepts, you know, that 
faster, higher, stronger, whatever the order of those are, uh, is something that we can see as part of the liberal democratic, the striving to make the world better. Yeah, well, in terms of the Cold War, uh, uh, and, and again, Bob's written about this, but uh, yeah, it's interesting hearing you uh, raise the boycotts because, uh, and I've got to speak up for uh, my home and native land, the, uh, the boycott really becomes a weapon in 1976. And, uh, right, correct. And has, and has a couple of elements to it. First, in terms of Cold War politics, there's a big kerfuffle over whether or not Taiwan can send its own, uh, send its own delegation to Montreal. And by that time, the PC, the mainland China, Chinese uh, Communist Republic or Communist China is recognized by all the Western powers. And so this becomes one of the first test points of the limits of that recognition vis-a-vis Beijing's claims over Taiwan. But the bigger thing is um, all the pretty much all the contingents from Africa and uh, South Asia boycott the Olympics to protest the admission of New Zealand and Australia which have managed, which have continued to maintain sporting relationships with uh, South Africa, despite uh, a Commonwealth ban and and other sanctions against uh, the South Africa uh, due to apartheid, and uh, uh, and this really cuts into the, uh, the sort of the allure of the Montreal Games, and then of course you get Moscow and uh, and then Los Angeles in turn, and it they're interesting Olympics to uh, compare in the uh, Cold War context, which is obviously Moscow had come as a response, the Moscow boycott had come as a response to uh, uh, the Afghan invasion earlier on, uh, and this is one of Carter's last acts, and that doesn't enjoy the support of all the Western powers, all the NATO powers. They're they're athletes competing on behalf of Great Britain, as I recall, Bob, and uh, uh, other uh, European, other NATO states, but, and what, from our point of view, uh, Moscow is a, is a, an appropriate disgrace uh, of the Soviet attempt to make themselves a real player to to, to live up to their aspirations for parity, cultural and, uh, and military parity with uh, especially the United States. But the the Los Angeles Olympics are really uh, they revel in the boycott uh, mounted by the Warsaw Pact. This is uh, a states uh, partly because. It leaves the field open, clear for uh, uh, leaves the field clear for an American overwhelming American dominance and a loudly celebrated American dominance, I should add, uh, in in the games and uh, a celebration given the uh, financing model that the uh, Uberoth brought into play. It's a celebration of a certain type of uh, capitalism uh, that's a very consonant with the Reagan era. So that they. Uh, the LA committee manages to mobilize every available message uh, in the context of the Cold War uh, to uh, to show the superiority of uh, of a certain type of capitalist system. Now, um, that's a denouement that starts to kick in with the Seoul Olympics, where by that time, people are willing to admit uh, the use of uh, performance-enhancing substances, uh, the, the scapegoat, or not scapegoat, the, uh, the culprit here being... Uh, Canadian athlete Ben Johnson, uh, who won the 100 meters. Uh, uh, but it also lays bare, uh, it also brings to the fore suspicions and actually knowledge behind the scenes that Soviet sports clients had been figuring out chemical ways to improve and enhance performance since at least the late 1950s. And it focused on, on one aspect of the two great uh, 
counter arguments of Western powers against the Eastern European and Soviet athletes is one, uh, their willingness to go to any extremes to win and to uh, play fast and loose with the rules. And which is connected with the other sphere is uh, the continuing insistence on a model of amateurism that we generally associate with Avery Brundage. Uh, the, the, the Soviets and their allies uh, flouted these by, uh, by really having shamateurs was the phrase at the time that they, uh, they had professional athletes who had a, a veneer of amateurism about them. So uh, by the late 1980s, all of these things have come to the fore. Bob, sorry to hog the floor. I need to, I'll again refer to you. <laughs> Well, and and, okay. and Bob, before we get to you, I wanted I wanted to to sort of move us uh, to what what I think is the natural question to follow from this, and the question we, in a sense, always like to close on, uh, which is how how can our listeners who care about uh, many of the ideals that you articulated so well, Bob and David, associated with the Olympic movement, uh, international peace and cooperation, amateurism, physical fitness. Uh, how, when we're watching the Olympics, uh, how can we try to support those values and de-emphasize all the polluting values that we've talked about here, the na- nation-state competition, the doping, the cheating? Uh, how can we make sure we're a part of the positive and not the negative side? Is that possible, Bob? Uh, well, to uh, build on what David uh, said, I think the best way uh, to appreciate it and make sense of it is the famous uh, line that Cher has with uh, Nick Cage in that, whatever it is, forget about it, snap out of it, (laughs) just enjoy these talented people competing with each other for roughly uh, what is part of a world monoculture of professional athletes of one sort or another to various degrees, depending on the sport, and just enjoy that and uh, understand that Olympism is an ideology that has its roots in some things, including empire, that are fairly dicey and uh, are definitely compromising in view of the concerns that we have in the present world today. I think I, I agree entirely. Bob says said it very well. Plus, for, for most fans now, uh, and there's always going to be that national element that you want to take pride in your own country's athletes, but it's, it's really become a festival for a lot of sports in which athletes work really, really hard, uh, thinking of the water sports and track and field and that, and seldom get attention. And this is their chance to shine. And like, you think of Usain Bolt, you think of uh, the, the American, you think of the American swimmers, you think of, uh, of other, uh, Jackie Joyner Kersey and, uh, and the fantastic female athletes we've seen from all over the world. Uh, it's a chance to give them their place in the sun and, and to appreciate how good they are. And don't forget the most important athlete of the entire Cold War, Wilma Rudolph. Absolutely. 1960. Yeah. So how does the meaning of this moment then change uh, going into 2020, uh, in 2021, actually, at the Tokyo at the Tokyo Olympics? How does this meaning change in a time of coronavirus and really the first time since World War II that the Olympics have been canceled or postponed? Bob, why don't you start us off? <laughs> you couldn't ask an easy one? <laughs> I think what you're seeing here is, uh, I'm learning about this now because I'm reading a, a book by a Russian author on the 1980 Olympics and the, just the sheer enormity of putting on an Olympics and the investment and time and effort, not just by the athletes, but the organizers as well yeah. and the sponsors and the 
security police and the construction and you, know, you name it. There's such a massive investment that it leads to a kind of uh, carelessness, I would argue, on uh, matters of safety that you know, so, so much has been put into this effort that the idea of having it come to nothing is so repugnant that they're willing to take these serious risks, not only with the athletes, but with the organized. I think about the media there that, you know, they're in enormous numbers. I mean, there's 10,000 media there. I was part of it at one point. I worked for CBS during the 1998 uh, Nagano Winter Games, and there's just so many reporters broadcasting, you know, uh, print running around there, exposing themselves, asking questions, opening mouths, being in mix zones. It's all of a piece. Yep, I put, you put it perfectly. I, I agree entirely. Thank you. And where where do you see us going from here? Um, is this is this a new moment in the in the Olympic story? Is this a mo- new moment in international sports, or are we sort of still stuck in the same cycle? Well, we're stuck in a really interesting news cycle, right? Because the uh, the Winter Olympics are scheduled for uh, for uh, for early night early twenty twenty two, and they're scheduled for Beijing, whose uh, selection uh, uh, listed a great deal of consternation. A because it's not really winter time. B because of uh, the environmental devastation in which the athletes will have to be competing. But most recently, because the internet mobilization of international opinion about the uh, Beijing government's treatment of the Uyghur population in uh, Xinjiang. And, uh, and, and there's already talk, I'm seeing talk up in Canada about the possibility of boycotting uh, as a protest of uh, uh, Beijing's high-handed policies. So uh, we might be entering <laughs> sort of fugue state, going back to the, uh, the, the Cold War in a very new setting. So let me make a personal point of uh, self-promotion uh, here. Uh, part of the second... Our Cold War project that we've hinted at a bit here, our second volume is going to be on the boycott era. of, And it starts, of course, with 76. Truth be told, there's boycotts even before then. And yep. then there are also boycotts that are out of the Olympic context as well. But this has come up. Of all people, Mitt Romney had a very interesting opinion piece in the New York Times about how to approach this question of boycotting. And he, I thought uh, quite carefully and in a measured way, uh, suggested different ways of protesting without necessarily penalizing the athletes. Yeah. So something may happen. So Zachary, as a young person who watches uh, sports and who's surrounded by others who do, do you see the Olympics as a, as a positive opportunity to bring out some of these issues or, or how do you, how do young people that you know approach these issues? Well, I think at the very least, the Olympics is in in many ways uh, young people's first experience with the world as a whole. It's it's one of the few areas that young people, uh, in in an exciting way, get to see all the countries of the world and all the peoples of the world uh, lined up and and competing. So I think in that sense, it is sort of a positive experience. But I think it's also important to keep these larger political issues in mind, and it's important to have that background. When watching the Olympics, right, and and you have a kind of absurdist view of it, at least as your poem exactly. indicated, right? Right, it's a very strange event. <laughs> I, uh, Bob and David, as as your last words and and thoughts, uh, how how do you personally view the Olympics? What what will you be thinking as you're watching the Olympics this year? Can I quote Zach? You may. <laughs> Warts and sports. <laughs> Warts and sports, David. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, interesting looking at sort of the uh, institutional machinations and the commercial element that's going on that actually underwrites the whole operation. But uh, 
the, the actual competition is always exciting and, uh, and can't help enjoying it. I agree 100%. I, I, I find myself intellectually uncomfortable, but emotionally caught up in it nonetheless. And, and I think one of the points of our podcast week in and week out is that uh, democracy uh, is not about a set of uh, static principles and static behaviors. It's about a constant adjustment to a variety of political, social, and economic pressures. And, and in some ways, the Olympics are, are a kaleidoscope. Uh, for that. And we all benefit from watching and thinking rigorously as we're watching and enjoying. And and David and Bob, you have given us so much background and uh, quite frankly, so much knowledge that we can bring to our watching to enjoy it more and think more critically about what we're seeing. So thank you both, uh, Bob and David, for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy. It was fun. This was a Thank lot you, of fun. Thank you. And I, I encourage everyone to uh, find uh, Bob and David's work and read it. Uh, we'll have citations on, on the website as always. And Zachary, thank you for your humor and uh, ironic disposition today toward the Olympics. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners. Thank you for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.